it's, it's great to be with you again and to be able to uh, preach at the, the first evening service of the year. That, that's a privilege. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Just before we, we pray and, and ask the Lord to help us as we, as we look at this uh, wonderful passage together, I've just got one notice. And if, 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 if you get the magazine for the open air mission, um, normally I leave them at the back, then this month's uh, edition or whatever it's called is, is out. And if you'd like to take one of those, um, there'll be some at the back later on. If you want to learn more about the work of the, the open air mission and what it is that we do as we, preach the Christ, as we preach the gospel on the streets, then please just take one of those, take it home and read about the work that we've been doing. Now we're going to just turn to this passage. If you've got your Bibles with you, then please do turn to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 28 to 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. And we'll just pray before we look at these verses together. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant. We thank you that here on our laps we've got the, the word of God. And here we, we learn about you. We learn about who you are and what you've done. We learn about the great salvation which you have provided for us in the, the work of your son, in his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection the third day, his ascension into heaven, and his intercession for his people. Father, we thank you that here in this book we find the words of life. And Father, it's our desire this evening as we look at the words of Scripture that you would give us understanding. Father, that you will apply these truths to our minds and our hearts that we would be changed, that we would be different to how we have previously been. Father, that we might have a, a greater trust in you, whatever life throws at us, whatever you have, have willed uh, to come our way, that we might trust you through it all. And Father, we thank you for this verse this evening, which gives us uh, comfort and the calm assurance as we, as we face trials. Here we learn wonderful truths that we can cling to. And Father, we pray as we begin this new year, as we look at what's ahead, that you will just help us to grasp afresh the truths in this passage so that we might, whatever comes our way, that we might glorify you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing at the start of a, of a new year, as we are, well, I'm standing, you're, you're sitting, but we're at the start of a new year, aren't we? And as you think ahead, you think about what this year will hold, I'm sure that you, you feel daunted, or maybe you don't, I do, as I think about what, what could happen in this year. Everything floods into your mind. Will I break down on the M1? Will I have bad news about health problems? Will I uh, lose my voice, not be able to preach in the open air? That's a personal one for me. But the, the point is we don't know, do we? we? We look at the year ahead and we just simply don't know what's going to happen. And it can be daunting. It can be fearful, the unknown. But wouldn't it be a great comfort to us if we knew that we belong to a God who did know everything and who is in control of everything and who has said to us in his word that he will make everything we experience work together for good. 
Wouldn't that give us great comfort? Wouldn't that give us calm assurance as we go into this year knowing that that was true? Well, the wonderful message this evening is that that is the truth that this passage that we've read this evening proclaims to us. That we have a God who knows everything, who's in control of everything, and who works everything for the good of his people. Now, knowing that brings peace and assurance as we, as we contemplate what the future might hold. Now, I think that one of the, the best ways we can start this year is to really have this truth under our belts, if you like, to have it really sunk into our hearts and into our minds, not just to read it and pass over it, but to have it so uh, burned into our hearts that, that whatever we face, we, we draw upon it. And I think one of the ways that that can be uh, true for us is if we really grasp what this passage means. Now, to be honest, that for me is an impossible task. I am, was sitting down there, and I was so nervous. I'm nervous now. And the point is because the truth of this passage is just so deep and so uh, vast that really for me to try and uh, help you to get a, a real grasp of what's here this evening is beyond my ability. But we, we have an almighty God who works by his sovereign spirit, even through weak people like me. And so hopefully we can begin to grasp a little bit of what's here. And then as you go home, you can read a good commentary on it and understand how it should really be explained. And then take it with you into the year. And so I'm going to try and help us to grasp it a bit. And then with all my failings, you can go home and study it even further. And the way I want us to help us uh, grasp this truth in this passage is firstly to look at verse 28, to think about what it means a little bit. And then I want to ask two questions of verse 28. And the two questions we will then answer with verse 29 and verse 30. If you look at verse 29... Paul says, for those God foreknew. And I want to emphasize the word for there. That word for shows us that Paul is giving an explanation of, of what he's just said. He is providing some further meaning. And so there's truths in verse 28 that Paul then opens up further in 29 and 30. So I want us to think about verse 28 and then ask two questions of the verse that we will then answer with verse 29 and 30. So first then, let's look at verse 28. And the main point of this verse is that God works everything for good to those who love him. That's the main point of verse 28. Now, to give us the context of what's going on in the verses before our reading, Paul has started to speak about suffering. In verse 18, he speaks about our present suffering. The things that we experience now as Christians. Things that other people experience as well. But there's also sufferings that are peculiar to Christians, that only Christians face. And then in verse 19 to 22, 22 he speaks about the suffering that all creation experiences. And he says that creation groans. And then in verse 23, he says, We ourselves are, are groaning, if you like, and eagerly awaiting for the adoption of the sons of God. In other words, he's, he's speaking about suffering and he's speaking about the, the day of resurrection, the day of the new creation when everything will be made new. 
And it's in that context of those themes of suffering and the new creation that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, begins in verse 28. Thinking about suffering, he says in verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So here Paul is giving some encouragement. He's giving some comfort after he's, after he's just been thinking about suffering because who knows what's going to happen next. You know, the mic has just fallen down there. And the point is, we never know what's around the corner. And in this life, we will suffer. And so we, we need something to hold on to. We need some hope. And here Paul gives us hope. And the first thing we see in verse 28 is that God works all things for good. And what I want us to notice first is that it is God who is doing this. He is the subject of the verb, if you like. He is the one who is doing the, the working. God works all things together for good. Now that should encourage us before we think even further, because this God is the one who is infinite in power. That means he's limitless. There is no bounds to what he can do. He is infinite in goodness and in his love, and he always will be, because he doesn't change. He's infinite in his wisdom and in his knowledge and in his grace. And it's this God who works all things for the good of his people. The God who has made us his children. This is the one who is working all things for good. And so we've seen, thought briefly there for just a second, who is doing it. So, so what is he doing? Well, he's working all things for good. And I think what we need to really zone in on here, we're going to think a little bit in a moment about what that good is. But before we do, we really need to just think about that phrase, all things. It's just one word in the Greek panda, and we translate it with two words, all things. And I want us just to think about that for a moment, because in our Christian experience, I think we take this verse and we apply it maybe to most things or to some things. But what the verse actually says, in whatever language you translate it in, or if you read it in the original, what it says is all things, everything, all things God works for good. That means every single thing you experience as a believer, God works it for good. He brings good things out of it. He's working it towards a good purpose, something that is good and right. Now, the context that Paul is writing in is the context of, of suffering. We know it's true that good things work together for good. We could probably say that's obvious. And what the real uh, emphasis on is here is not just good things, but also bad things. Bad things that you experience. I've got a few examples here. For example, physical suffering. That's included there in all things. Physical suffering, illness, in, whether it's incurable or whether it's being treated now. God is working through that. He's working it out for good. He's working in it. He's using it. He's orchestrating it for a good purpose. Physical pain. Perhaps you've got pain that never goes. The painkillers just seem to numb it for a while and then it comes back with a vengeance. Well, God is even working that for good. All things. Age. Aches and pains. What about mental suffering? 
depression or worry, anxiety. God is working through these things, all things. What about spiritual suffering? What about doubts, temptations? What about a spiritual attack? Well, God works all things together for good. And that word all means all. Absolutely everything that you experience. God is working all things for good. Now, this does not mean that God is the author of our suffering. It doesn't mean that God is the author of sin, but it does mean that he overrules it and that he uses it. He orchestrates it for his own good and loving purposes. God works all things together for good. And one more thing we need to look at as the verse continues, the Apostle Paul says, for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And so there we see who he does this for. He does this, God Almighty works all things, absolutely everything, for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. And here we've got two descriptions of the kind of person that God does this for. And the first description that Paul gives is, is a description that tells us what they do. What do they do? Well, these are the people who love him, who love God. And well, that's describing Christians, isn't it? That's describing believers. Those who have been born again by God's Spirit, those whose hearts have been changed by His grace, those who were once enemies of God, who have now been made children of God. They love Him. And it says here that God is working for good for those who love Him. Well, we have another description of these people. And this description is telling us not what they do, but what God has done for them. And it says, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that word called there is referring to something that God has done in them. It's referring to what we might call, it's the, uh, we might call the effectual call. That, 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 that call that God uh, did in that individual when he brought them to saving faith. Now, we must notice that, that this cannot be speaking about just what some call the external call, which is the call of the gospel that goes to every single person. That is true. The gospel call goes to everybody. But this call here is a special kind of call because it's, it's distinguishing these people from other people. And now, we know that not everybody believes. Not every, everybody loves God. This call here is a special call, and it's a call, it says, according to his purpose. And it's speaking about that, that, that special work that God does in the heart of a believer. We can think about Acts 16, where it says, God opened Lydia's heart so that she received the things that were said. Well, that's a description of, of, of that call that God gives, that effectual call that, that God uh, does inside of a person when he brings them to saving faith. And so when God is, when Paul here is saying those who are called, he's referring to those people that God has worked in savingly, sovereignly, to bring them to himself. And that word will come up again in a moment, and, it will, and we'll see it again, and, and it will help us to understand it more when we read it in verse 30. But before we go any further, let's just think about this for a moment. What we've, what we've thought of so far in verse 28. And what we know from this 
is that whatever you experience, whatever you go through as a Christian, well, God in his love makes it work for your good. Whatever it is, God makes it work for your good. And we can be encouraged as we go into this year that whatever we face, we know that good will come from it. Because we have a loving God who is in control of everything and who wants the best for us. There's that wonderful hymn which I've quoted in the past by William Cooper. And this is what the verse, one of the verses says. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And we know as we go into this year that we will have at times experiences that we could describe as a frowning providence. But we know that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face because he works all things together for good to those who love him. Now, this is the comfort, this is the hope that the believer has. But before we, 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 we go any further, we have to just point that point out, even uh, just emphasize it, that this is the hope of the believer And the unbeliever, the one who is without Jesus Christ, the one who has never repented, never turned from their sin, and never believed in Jesus for themselves, that person does not have this hope. They don't. This verse says that God works all things together for good to those who love him. And to those who don't love God, that's not true for them. And the reality is actually the complete opposite. And if, 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 if you were to die without Christ, the fact is everything has been working not for good, but for your eternal ruin, your ultimate ruin, your everlasting ruin. It's the complete opposite. The whole thing gets turned in on its head. And that's what's true for the unbeliever. But the wonderful hope here for the believer is that God works all things together for good. Now, perhaps you're concerned by that because you know that you don't love him and you, 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 you haven't turned to Christ. Well, that's why God calls you to himself. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Don't you want this hope? Don't you want to go into the year knowing there is a good and loving God who is working everything you experience for good? Don't you want that? Well, of course you do. Who doesn't? Well, turn to Christ. Believe in him. Turn to him and be saved. Well, what what comfort we have as Christians, what assurance. But there's more in this verse that we need to understand. And in order to do that, I want us to ask two questions. Two questions of verse 28 that are then answered in verse 29 and verse 30. Now, the first question that I want us to ask is, well, what is the good that's being spoken about here? What is this good that Paul is referring to? And the second question is, well, how can we know? Paul says, for we know that God works all things for good. Well, how can we know? So they're the two questions that I want us just to ask as we think a little bit further about this verse. So what is the good that's being spoken about here? What is this good that God is working everything towards? Well, we could say that it's temporal good. And that's, that's partly true. God is working bad things we experience for our temporal good. Sometimes you might experience something that's bad and God might turn it around and and good might come from it. Perhaps you've got things in your mind that you can think of already. There's an example in the Bible with Joseph. Joseph 
in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Now, that's a a very uh, terrible thing to experience. But we know that God turned that around so that Joseph became ultimately the prime minister of Egypt. And so God turned his evil experience to his temporal good. And that's an example of of, of that being done. And, and Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. And that God does do that. But that's not the, the full meaning of, of, of good in this verse. The good that God works all things toward is what we might call our greatest good. Our greatest good. And we see what that is in the next verse, in verse 29. And verse 29 says this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so there we learn what this good is that God's working everything towards. And it is that we will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, to the likeness of Jesus Christ, that one day we will be like him. And that's our greatest good. In verse 30, it's called being glorified. It's our glorification when we will be changed, when we will see him and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, when we will receive a a glorified body like the resurrected body of Jesus, like the glorified body of Jesus, and we will be free from sin, we will be free from suffering, we will be free from death, we will be partakers of the new creation. We'll be in the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells with his people. Where there's no pain or sin or suffering. We'll have bodies that are free from weakness and sin and that are able to love God in their full capacity. And we will be made like Christ. Verse 18 says this. Thinking about this glorification we will experience. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that's the good that's being spoken of in verse 28. That glory that will be revealed in us when we're made like him. When we're revealed in the likeness of the Son of God. When we receive our resurrected bodies. And the wonderful truth of verse 28 is that the whole trajectory of our life, everything we experience, all that goes on in our lives, all of it is heading toward that one goal of being like Him, being like Christ. Everything we experience, and that's our greatest good. You might like things to work together for another good. Sometimes we we want things to work together for, for temporal goods that we find, that we think are important and that we need now. But God has a bigger purpose, a better purpose. And he has in mind our ultimate good, our greatest good, our highest good, which is to be with him in the new creation with glorified bodies like Christ in his immediate presence. That's the, the greatest good for us, what we could call our greatest good. But there's another good that I think we need to point out here. It's not just our good that God is working for, our greatest good. But if you look at verse 29, it's also the greatest good. Not just our greatest good, but the greatest good. And 
what I mean is this. It says this, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's our greatest good. Now we've got the greatest good, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God is working all things together for our good, yes, our ultimate good, but also for the, the highest good that there is. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest good that there is. The highest aim is to glorify Jesus. And that is included in this verse. And it's what God is working towards. Yes, our good. But yes, also towards the greatest good. The Shorter Catechism says this. It asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the highest aim of human beings? What's the greatest thing we can do? And it replies, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the good that God is working towards is, yes, it's our greatest good, resurrection bodies in the new creation, but it's also the greatest good, which is his glory, which is Jesus Christ being the firstborn among many brothers. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. God is working for his own glory in everything that we experience for our greatest good and for the greatest good, which is the honor of his holy name. And so as Christians, we know that nothing we experience, nothing that we suffer is meaningless. And everything we go through, all that we, that we face in our lives, all of it is orchestrated by God and used by God to bring about our greatest good and his own glory. And so that's the good that's being referred to there. That's the good that God's working all things together for. The, th the next question, our final question, and then we'll, we'll just bring it to a close. Our final question is, well, how do we know? How do we know this is true? This is all very encouraging hearing all of this, but how can we really be sure? Paul says in verse 28, he says, and we know that in all things God works for good. How can he be so confident? How can he have such assurance? Well, again, we get the answer in verse 29 and verse 30. And the first answer is we know because of God's predestination. Because of God's predestination. And look, look with me again at verse 29. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's saying those whom God foreknew. That's speaking about, to put it simply, speaking about believers. Foreknew there, it's not just a, a, a mere fore, fore, uh, sight that they would believe, but it's a, it's a fore-loving, uh, it's, it, it's a choosing. We could say that those whom God chose. Now, if you want to debate with, Matt, with me at the end, please come and speak to me. I've got four reasons in my notes as to why foreknowledge there isn't just uh, knowing that they would believe, but it's actually choosing them. And if you'd like to discuss that with me afterwards, please come and speak to me. I won't touch on it now because I've got four minutes. But so it's it, those whom God foreknew, and then it says he predestined. And it's that word predestined that I really want us just to think about for a moment. Because it's saying that God has predetermined 
what will happen to them. That's what that word predestined means. It's, it's two words put into one. Pre means before, beforehand, and destined means to uh, bring to a desired end, to a goal. We use the word destiny, don't we? And the, 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 the meaning, I suppose, is similar. And so if God predestines someone, he beforehand determines their end goal, where they're going to end up. And so it says that God has predestined Christians to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This means that God willed it, planned it, purposed it before we were even created. And for that reason, we know that it it is certain. It is a fact. God has decreed it. Now, God does not change his mind. God doesn't change his plans. He is infinite in knowledge and in wisdom. God's never had a plan B because everything that he plans, his eternal purpose, it never changes because he never changes. And so if God has predestined it, it is certain, as certain as we are here this evening listening to this this sermon. God has predestined our conformity to Christ and he has the power to make it happen and it will happen. And so Paul can say, we know not because we have a hand in it, but because the eternal almighty God has planned it. He has willed it and it will happen. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has predestined it and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul can say, we know. And the second way that Paul can say, second reason Paul can say we know is in verse 30. And there is some overlap here, but there is a slight difference as well. So Paul says in verse 29, we know because of God's predestination, he's predetermined our end. But now he speaks about God's saving purpose, if you like. I couldn't think of a better way to describe it, so that's what I've got. But he basically gives what might be called the the golden chain of redemption. He gives a, a, a a flow to what God does. And basically, the point he's making is, if the first thing has happened to you, then the final thing will happen to you. And in verse 30, what he says is this, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so there's that word again, called. And we know that it's not speaking about every single person in the world. Because it says, those whom he called, he also justified. And we know that it's only believers who are justified. So it's only believers who are called. And it's referring again to what we call the effectual call, that sovereign work that God does in a person's heart when he brings them to saving faith in Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what that word called there means. And what we learn is that those who he called, those that God brought to himself, that he drew to Christ, it says those he also justified. And that word justified is one, as we, if you come to this church and you attend the services, you go to the big peach, you've, you've heard that word taught on many times. It's that word justification where we're declared to be righteous, not because we have our own righteousness, but because the, the righteousness of Jesus has been counted as ours. It's been imputed to us. And so God sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Christ. And his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is counted as ours. 
as though we had done it. And Paul is saying, if you've been called, you've been justified. And here comes the certainty. And he also says, if you've been justified, you've been glorified. Now, there's something, two things we need to notice about that word glorified. It's speaking about our glorification. What we were just speaking about in verse 29, that we're going to be like Jesus in the new creation. We're going to be there with him, like him. But that, we know, is a future event. It hasn't happened yet. We're all still here. But if you notice, it's written here in the past tense, glorified. And in the Greek, it's, it's called the aorist tense. And basically, it's the, we translate it a past tense. And called, justified, and glorified are all in the same tense. And yet, glorification is still future. We've not had it yet. We're still waiting for it. But why does Paul put it in the past tense? Well, from God's uh, perspective, if you like, it's as good as done. Because he has willed it. He has decreed it. He's predestined it. If you've been called, you've been justified. And if you've been justified, you will be glorified. And so there's great certainty here. Our glorification is still future, but in the mind of God, it's, it's as though it's already happened because it's certain. It's fixed. It cannot be changed. And so we can be certain that God is working everything for good because God has predestined our glorification and in God's mind, if you've been called, you've been justified, you've been glorified. And so what certainty we can have in times of difficulty. We know that God is working everything together for good, for our ultimate good, and for the greatest good, which is his glory. And this brings us back to where we started. We know, as the verse says, we know, and we know because of God's predestination, that all things work together for good. That's our ultimate good, our glorification. And that everything is being orchestrated to, to, to that end. And we know it, and we know it for certain. Now, what will this year hold? What's ahead? We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We simply do not know. What we do know is that we have a God who knows everything, who's in control of everything, and he has said in his word that he will make everything work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. So whatever we face, we can be certain that God will bring good from it. Temporal good, yes. Certainly our ultimate good. And so we can say whatever my God ordains is right.